All right, well, good evening. Go ahead and open with me to John chapter 17. Theme of our music so far has been the glory of Christ, and that is a worthy theme because as we see the theme of these five verses that we're going to study in John chapter 17, we see that Jesus is praying for his glory. Barry already read the verses for us, so I'll just go ahead and lead us in prayer, and then we'll dive into our message this evening. So if you would, close your eyes, bow your heads, and let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Indeed, Lord, we, we sing and we pray now, all glory be Christ. Father, I pray now, glorify your Son in and through the preaching of the Word, for he is the Lord of life. He has conquered death, he has defeated the cross, he has been risen from the grave, he has ascended on high, he is All authorities, all powers, all knees, all tongues will confess his glory. May we do so now as we sit here underneath your word. May we be instructed by it and would our hearts beat with Christ's that we would see him glorified. Thank you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, here we are in John chapter 17, continuing our sermon series in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus' Farewell Discourse. As we turn to John chapter 17, we see that Jesus closes in a word of prayer, a, a message here of prayer. It's often, often been said that what breathing is to our physical life, so too praying is to our spiritual life. We cannot live without breathing, and as a Christian, we cannot live without praying. Another way you could picture it is that of a, a thermos, uh, thermometer. Uh, just as a thermostat is used to measure our physical temperature, so prayer can be used to gauge our spiritual temperature. The more fervent our prayer life, the hotter we burn for the glory of God. And do y'all just study this? Dusty just went through a whole series of sermons at your retreat that you had not too long ago, and as you saw there, and as we see now, prayer stands at the very heart of the Christian life. As 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane has famously said, quote, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. Prayer is at the core of Christian life. But not only is it essential in our lives, we see that it's essential in the life of our Lord. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus praying at key junctures of his earthly ministry. At the very beginning, as he inaugurated his ministry during his baptism, it says in Luke chapter 3 that Jesus was praying and the Holy Spirit descended. In the well-known passage in Mark chapter 1, after Jesus has spent a whole day of ministry, healing, casting out demons, he is weary, he is worn out, 
He goes to bed, and what does he do before he goes throughout to preach? He wakes up early in the morning, and he seeks his father in prayer. There on the mountaintop, as Jesus is determining who are going to be his 12 apostles, he spent the whole night in prayer. Right before Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus was praying. At the transfiguration, Jesus was doing what? He was praying while he was battling for Peter, uh, Peter's soul that Satan might not sift him. What did he do? He prayed as the cross drew close and his sufferings drew greater. In the garden of Gethsemane, our Lord was praying. And it was on the cross as Jesus was dying for the sins of his people that Jesus uttered out prayer. Not only at the key junctures of, of his life, we also see that the overall pattern of our Lord's life was that of prayer. One of my favorite passages is Luke chapter 5, verse 16, which says these simple words. He would often slip away to pray. That was our Lord, often. He would just slip away, get alone, get away to be with his Father and pray. That was Jesus' life. He consistently taught on prayer. We have some of his teachings recorded in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 and chapter 7, Luke chapter 11. And in fact, it's interesting to note that there's only one thing that the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them. I don't know if you ever thought of that. The disciples only asked Jesus to teach them one thing. And no, disciples didn't ask Jesus to teach them how to teach. They say, hey, Jesus, how, how, do, how do we teach God's word? They didn't ask Jesus how to counsel people or how to serve people or how to heal people or how to cast out demons. No, in, in Luke chapter 11, the disciples only asked Jesus one thing. It was to pray. Why? Why did they ask Jesus to pray? What I would argue is because they saw in Jesus' life one thing that stuck out and struck them the most. And that was his prayer life. I mean, let's admit, right? You, you meet LeBron James. You don't ask LeBron James how to do calculus. I mean, maybe he's great at calculus. I don't know. But you're not going to ask, hey, LeBron, how do, I, how do I find derivatives? How do I learn what the area under the curve is? You're not going to ask LeBron James about calculus. You're going to ask LeBron James how to do what? How to play basketball. Because he's a phenomenal basketball player. In the same way, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray because they saw in their Lord a man committed to communion with his heavenly Father. And as we get here now to John chapter 17, out of all the prayers that Jesus uttered throughout his life, it is this prayer, this prayer, that is perhaps the most profound prayer ever uttered. John MacArthur helpfully captures it for us when he says this, quote, its words are plain yet majestic, simple yet mysterious. They plunge the reader into the unfathomable depths of the inter-Trinitarian communication between the Father and the Son and their scope encompasses the entire sweep of redemptive history from election to glorification, including the themes of regeneration, revelation, illumination, sanctification, and preservation. 
The veil is drawn back, and the reader is escorted by Jesus Christ into the holy of holies, to the very throne of God. Here in this prayer, right, if we're thinking of a sermon series that says a window into the heart of the Savior, it's fitting that we end it with this very prayer. Murray, Murray Harris writes this, quote, here we have an unblemished transcript of Jesus's soul, a window into his inmost conscience. Roots, if you want to peer into the heart of Christ for his people, then you don't need to go any further. Just sit back, open your ears, and listen as Jesus prays. The title that I've given to this chapter, since I get to go first, I get to name it whatever I want, is this, the Lord's Prayer. And perhaps, maybe that's a little striking to you. Traditionally, since the 16th century, this chapter has been known as the High Priestly Prayer. And that's a valid title. I have no reason to argue against that. In fact, Jesus emulates his work as a high priest. As Brandon will open that up for us here coming up, Jesus will intercede on behalf of his people. But it's better, I would argue, and simpler to just call this the Lord's Prayer. Some commentators even go so far as to say this is the real Lord's Prayer. Often we traditionally think of the Lord's Prayer as what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, so on and so forth. But we could better call that the Disciples' Prayer, right? That was what we, as disciples, were taught to be the pattern of our prayer. But here... In John chapter 17, we see Jesus himself, the Lord, praying. And it comes after one of the most comforting and challenging discourses recorded for us in the, in the Gospels. Jesus has cleansed his disciples in John chapter 13. He's comforted them in John chapter 14. He's taught them how to cope in the world that's hostile against them in chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, as we got to the end of it last time, you saw that he gave courage to his disciples, he has overcome the world. And as Jesus brings it all to a close, he entrusts it all to God in prayer, praying that God would make effectual his work and teaching in the lives and hearts of his people. The prayer can be subdivided into two headings. Again, two headings here. And the first is the context of the prayer that we see in verse one. And the second is the content of the prayer going on in verse 1 through 26. Within this content of Jesus' prayer, there's going to be three groups, three categories, three people that he focuses on, and we'll study each of those as they come. The first is that Jesus is going to pray for himself. His first petitions focus on his own glory. Secondly, we see that Jesus prays for his 11 disciples in verses 6 through 19. He prays and asks that the Father would keep them, in his name, that the Father would sanctify them in the truth. And then thirdly, we see that Jesus prays for his future people, the church, all believers who will believe upon him in verses 20 through 26. And he prays that they would be one. The bulk of our time, though, today is going to be focused on those first five verses as Jesus prays for himself. And at the core of this message, the summary of these first five verses, I boil it down to this is that Jesus 
prays that the Father would glorify him through his death on the cross in accordance with the Father's eternal plan of salvation. Jesus is praying for his glory, and he is going to be glorified through the cross. And the reason why he is going to suffer on the cross, to be glorified through the cross, is because of the Father's eternal plan. And now here's your objective as you sit here under God's word. Your objective this evening is to first see the heart of our Savior as he prays. As you see his heart, as you see him, to savor him, to love him, to delight evermore in Christ. And your other objective tonight is to glean, glean from Jesus' own personal life, how he lived his life for the glory of God, and to glean how you can then pray also for the glory of God and pray for the eternal plan of God. Look with me at verse 1. Jesus spoke these things. Like any good pastor, Jesus closes his message in prayer. And what does he do? He says, Jesus spoke these things in lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Lifting up his eyes was a customary posture for prayer. Uh, we see in throughout the New Testament different references in which they lifted up their hands to God and they lifted up their eyes to the one who was in heaven. The background of this comes from the Old Testament. It speaks of a heart that is in complete humility and dependence upon the heavenly maker. Psalm 123 verses 1 through 2 says this, To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. This idea of lifting up our eyes to heaven is a, a heart that is humbly dependent upon the one it is looking to. We see Jesus, the Son, looking to the Father with a heart of reliance. And so to our hearts, every time we come before the Lord, should be in a posture of prayer, not externally only, but internally, relying upon the Lord. And so here is Jesus. He's finished his discourse. He's finished his message. And now he is coming to lift up his eyes to heaven to pray. And what does he pray? He says, Father, the hour has come. Notice the, the address here. Notice who he is praying to. He is praying to the Father. All right, Jesus is not coming to some ruthless tyrant. Uh, our God is not some cold, distant deity, unwilling and unable to hear and respond to the prayers of his people. Right, this is the Father. This is the one who is close to his people. This is the one who loves his people. It, it communicates warmth. It, it communicates an intimate relationship that the Son has with the Father. But not only that, Jesus says, that you too, if you are a believer here tonight, that you too have that same privileged position in prayer. 
that you too can call the God of the universe, the one who makes the mountains melt like wax, you can call him Father. I wish we had time to go to Matthew chapter 6 and 7 to look at what that means for us as believers, but I'll summarize it for us. There we see that our Father, he sees. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. And he who prays in secret, the Father sees in secret. Our Father sees his people as they pray, as they gather before him, isolated from the world, when no one else is looking. And our Father hears. Not only does he see you as you pray, he, he hears as you cry out to him. I'm reminded of Hagar in Genesis. As she was alone in the desert, there she is. The Lord saw her. The Lord heard her, and he answered her prayers. Or you take Hannah in 1 Samuel. There Hannah is crying out to God. And what is we see there with our father? He hears her. He sees her. He answers her prayers. Why? Well, Jesus continues to go on in Matthew chapter 6. It's because our father knows our every need. Not only does he see, not only does he hear, he knows. Believe it, he knows. I mean, there are times I don't know what to pray. Say, Father, you know. You know. You're here. You see. Sometimes it feels like the walls are closing in. Sometimes it feels like my prayers are bouncing back from the roof down to me as if nobody is there. The Father is there. He sees. He hears. He knows. And then Jesus ends in Matthew chapter 7, and he says that our Father is good. Not only, not only is he one who sees, hears, knows, but he's good. And he gives what is good to his children who ask him. And so Jesus says, Father, right? And he will continue to go on to balance this. It's uh, John chapter 17. He says, Holy Father, righteous Father. Right, we still have to remember who it is we're addressing. This is our Father, yes. But this is God Almighty, the one who is holy and righteous. And so we rightly tremble before his greatness still. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. This is really the context. This is really the, the prompt, the, the stimulus. Here's the reason why Jesus is praying, and it's, because of this, the hour has come. You know already, as we've taught, the hour points back to what? Points to Jesus's death, his crucifixion, his future resurrection. Before this, throughout the gospel, it was always this. It was always the hour is coming. Or it might say the hour is not yet. In fact, we could stretch it back further and say from Genesis chapter 3, there is a sense in which the world was waiting for this hour. The hour was coming in which the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so the world was waiting, waiting for its Messiah, waiting for its Savior, just like the, the little child waiting on Christmas Eve for Christmas Day to come so they could unwrap the Amazing gifts that were sitting there so wonderfully wrapped around the Christmas tree. The world was waiting for the gift of the Messiah. The hour was coming. And now Jesus says, the hour has come. 
It's here. With the rejection of Jesus as Israel's Messiah and in accordance with the Father's will, Jesus says the hour has finally arrived. It was time for him to finish what he was sent to do. And so that's the context of Jesus' prayer here. One of a dismal, bleak, horrendous context in which Jesus is about to die. It is in that context, though, that Jesus prays. It's as if the, the misty blackness of that final day is beginning to shroud in around Jesus. But here he stands forth and he declares this glorious prayer to God like a shot of brightness, a flash of light in the dark. This is what makes this plea so grand, right? Yeah, in any context, this prayer would have, been a, would have been a beautiful prayer. But now take into consideration that it is offered in the face of such immense suffering that this prayer becomes all the more beautiful. And so Jesus prays in the midst of his suffering. And before we move on, just take a, a second to learn from Jesus here. Here part of your objective, gleaning from Jesus, right? Oftentimes, you know, we get tripped up with God's sovereignty and prayer, right? If God is sovereign, then why should I even pray, right? If God's got this figured out, if he, if he knows all, if his plan's going to be worked out, then why should I pray, right? Well, let's think, who was Jesus? Okay, he was God, did he know that he was going to die on the cross? Yes. Did he know that God sovereignly was going to work this all out according to his purpose, his plan? Yes. Did Jesus pray? Yes. Right, Jesus teaches us that we are to pray. We are to pray. As D.A. Carson notes, Jesus' example teaches us that God's sovereignty functions as an incentive to pray, not a disincentive. Also, Jesus' example encourages us to pray in our times of darkness, as I just noted, right? Are you tempted in your times of struggle to just keep your mouth shut? Well, Jesus shows us that we're not to do that. Even in our hardest times, in our hardest moments, in the most difficult of painful situations, pray. Turn to your heavenly Father. And so then it is this that serves as the background, the context of Jesus' prayer. A humble, obedient son looking to his gracious, loving Father and crying out to him in his greatest need as he faced his greatest pain. That brings us then to the content of the prayer, starting in verses 1 through 26. And as I noted, there's three categories we're only looking at the first one today, and that is that Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his own glory. His prayer in these first five verses can be divided up into two petitions. Jesus prays for himself as he does. He offers up two petitions to the Father. The first petition is this, Father, glorify your Son through the cross, verses 1 through 3. So here is Jesus. He's lifted his eyes up to heaven. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Glorify your son. The word glorify means to make great, to exalt, to magnify. 
to clothe Christ with splendor and majesty, to magnify his name above all names, as we even sang this morning. And how? How is Jesus to glorify, excuse me, how is the Father to glorify his Son? Well, it's through the cross. It would be through Christ's substitutionary death in the place of his enemies that Jesus says, Father, now glorify me. That's a striking request. On many different accounts, for 99.99% of people, the cross was an instrument of what? Of torture. It was an instrument of death. But not only torture, not only death, it was the epitome of shame, humiliation, and contempt. If you died upon a cross, you were ridiculed. You were exposed. You were abased. You were humbled. And yet Jesus says it is through that very instrument of shame and torture and mockery and pain in which, Father, glorify me, your son. See, the cross was the pathway for Christ to glory. Why? Well, it's because the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension are all inseparable. It's exactly because Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, that God has now bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Right? It is exactly because Jesus spilled his lifeblood for us that for ages upon ages, as 10,000 years by 10,000 years go by, his people's praise will be no closer to the end of their glorious refrain, worthy is the lamb, than when it first began. So Jesus, looking forward to the cross, does not pray with a mood of despondency, of hopelessness, but we see here of joy. Glorify your son. Hebrews, chapter, uh, Hebrews 12, verse 2, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Of course, this doesn't mean that the cross wasn't painful. It doesn't mean that the cross wasn't shameful. Indeed, it was temporarily it doesn't mean that Jesus couldn't only a few hours later agonize and sweat drops of blood as he prayed fervently to the Father that the cup would pass from, would pass from him. But what it does mean is that though his suffering was great, his focus was on the glory that was beyond, the glory that was far greater. There's a second striking thing just about this first request his first petition is just the audacity of Jesus to make such a petition. I mean, do you realize what Jesus is doing here? He is saying, Father, glorify me. Well, who is God? God is God. He is the one who has glory. And what does this say about God? It says that God is a jealous God. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, my glory I will not give to another. So therefore, Jesus, saying that the Father should glorify him, Jesus is making an audacious claim that he is God. And so we see here Jesus asking to be glorified through his work on the cross, and only God can make such a claim as this. But as we get going, we see that Jesus is not just praying for his glory. His focus is not just on himself, but rather his prayer is that he would be glorified, in turn, so that the Father would be glorified. So we see Jesus' desire, the goal of his petition there in verse 1. 
Why does he pray this? Why does he ask? Why does he petition the Father to glorify him? Well, we see it's this. That's so that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' goal, his aim, his focal point, the ultimate end that he was pursuing in his prayer had one goal, one end. It was, yes, Father, glorify me, but ultimately, Father, so that you would be glorified in and through me. The glory of God was the heartbeat of Jesus' life. That's why he lived, moved, had his being, was to glorify the Father. And so Jesus says, glorify me in and through the cross so that now, Father, you will be glorified. Well, how? How was the Father to be glorified through the Son? Well, we see it's because through the cross that we most clearly see the fullness of the Father's love. It is at the cross that we behold most spectacularly the Father's wisdom. It's in the cross that we grasp most visibly the Father's justice and righteousness. It's there on the cross that the Father is most glorified in his Son. We come then to Jesus' reason for his petition. Why does he then make this petition? Why does he say, Father, glorify me with the goal, the aim that you would be glorified? Well, he gives it there in verse 2. He says, even as. A better translation, I admit, ESV does a better job here. They, um, they argue and they translated that the word here is since. In other words, what Jesus is saying, glorify your son that the son may, be glor- uh, that the son may glorify you since or because or for. In other words, Jesus is giving the reason here for his petition. Here it is. It's because you gave the son authority over all flesh. Oh, excuse me, over all flesh. And Jesus will go on to say that he gave him authority over all flesh for a purpose. That is to give to all whom the Father has given him eternal life. So then we could boil down the reason for his petition is this, God's eternal plan. Why, Father, should you glorify me and I in turn glorify you? Because this was your plan all along. This is what the eternal plan, the counsels of your will from before time began. This was what you had decreed. And so we see here Jesus saying, For since because you gave him authority over all flesh. The word gave it indicates a past time event. This refers to the authority placed upon the Son from before time. That Jesus is to be glorified because from the beginning of creation, he is the sovereign one. He is the one who has all authority, all power over all flesh. And when he came here on earth, he demonstrated that. He taught as one who had authority. He cast out demons as one who had authority. He had authority to execute judgment on the world. And we see here in our context Jesus had all authority over all flesh to give life, to give eternal life to God's elect. He goes on, he says, For you have given him authority over all flesh. To what end, to what purpose? That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. All, not some, not a portion 
Not a few, not most, but all. Every single one that the Father has given to his Son as a gift to those the Lord Jesus will give eternal life. As we go on throughout the prayer, we see who that all is. It's narrowed down, not to all people, but as we see in verse 6, it is to the disciples. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. We see in verse 24, it's not just the 11 disciples that Jesus is talking about here, but Jesus gives eternal life to all future believers whom the Father has given him. So it is these elect ones, these that the Father has chosen from before the foundation of the world to set his love upon, as it says in verse 6, that they were his, they were God's, they were the Father's. And now the Father has given them, this people, this bride, to his Son as a love gift, as Pastor Tom so often likes to refer it to. And so it is these people that the Father has given to the Son. Every single one of them, Jesus has authority to do what? So that he may give to them eternal life. Eternal life. This is the Father's plan. This is the triune counsel of redemption. Jesus continues on in verse 3 in his prayer. He continues to explain what this eternal plan looks like, what it means. Verse 3, he says, this is eternal life. This, what I'm about to say, is eternal life. What we see here is that eternal life is not a quantity, but rather a quality. It's not an everlasting existence in which we will have unlimited number of days to live, but rather a quality of life with the Lord. Because Let's be honest, every single one of us in this room are going to live forever. Some of us are going to live forever, delighting in the glorious presence of God. And some of us are going to live forever under eternal destruction, away from the glorious presence of God. So Jesus says, here is eternal life. This is it. This is the authority I have been given to grant that they might know you. Right? Notice Jesus doesn't say that they may know historical facts about you. He doesn't say that they might know Bible verses about you. That they might not know what others say about you. But this is eternal life, that they might know you. This intimate, personal knowledge leading to a transformed life. You ask, well, how can I know if I know him? How do I know if I know God. First John, it's been the study we've been looking at. Big church. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. This is how you know God. You keep his commandments. First John, chapter 4, verse 7. This is how you know God. You love him and you love others. You see, to know God, Carson writes, is to be transformed. When you know God, your life is transformed by God. Some of you might say, yeah, I know Dak Prescott. I know him really well. I know what team he plays for, the best team in the world. I know how many touchdown passes he had last year, and I know how many interceptions he had last year, which were way more than his touchdown passes. I know him. I follow him on social media. I am a 
very acquainted with Dak Prescott. But do you know him? Have you even talked to him before? If you were to walk in a room, would he even acknowledge you? No, you don't know Dak Prescott. Friends, do, do you know Jesus Christ? I know he died on the cross. I know he was raised from the grave. I know he's supposed to be coming back again sometime. Okay. But do you know him? Has your life been transformed by him? If he were to walk into this room, would he look at you and acknowledge you as one of his people? Do you know him? Jesus goes on to flush this out more. That they may know you. Well, who are you talking about, Jesus? Well, that they know you, the only true God. All right, it's not enough to just say you know God, you believe in God. As we've been learning in 1 John chapter 5, the object of your faith is just as important. They need to know that you are the only true God. And they need to know that you have sent Jesus Christ as your son to die in their place. They need to know the only true God and Jesus Christ. All right, it's not one without the other. It's not the Father without the Son. It's not the Son without the Father. They have to know the Father and the Son. 1 John chapter 2, verse 23 says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Just a couple weeks ago, I was talking to a Muslim friend of mine in which we were talking, and he said, Wes, we have the same God. And I looked at him, and no, we don't have the same God. Uh, what do you say about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Oh, Jesus was a great person. He was a great prophet. He lived a great life, a great teacher. Is Jesus God? No, he's not God. Did he die upon the cross? No, he didn't die upon the cross. Is he raised from the dead? No, he's not raised from the dead. Brother, you, we don't have the same God. You don't know him. Jesus says we have to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So the question today is, do you know God? As we, before we continue to go on, the, I must press this home to you. Understand that you have an eternal significance here in that question. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 says this, whoever, excuse me, that the Lord Jesus will come from heaven a flaming fire with his angels, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not know God, that is your fate. But here's the good news. If today you say, I don't know God, Wes, then the good news is Jesus has authority. He has authority to give life. He has authority to give you life today. If you would repent and turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ, you can know God. We come now to the second petition. His second petition in, uh, in verse 4 and verse 5 is this, Father, glorify me in your presence. Another petition for his glory, but nuanced this time. 
And this time he begins with the reason up front. We can see that from verse 5, where he says, Now, Father, in other words, Jesus is pointing back to what he has just said in verse 4. Now, or therefore, Father, here is my petition. So then we get the reason for his petition in verse 4. It is this, his accomplished work. The son's accomplished work. He says, verse 4, I glorified you on the earth. Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Here is why you should glorify me, Father. I finished the work. I finished the race. I've accomplished the work that you gave to me. Just like the athlete brings brilliance to the coach when he faithfully carries out the coach's demands, or the employee brings honor to their employer when they dutifully fulfill their boss's obligation, so Christ gives glory, brings glory to the Father when he completes the mission that he was sent to do. And notice again how Jesus speaks of this work. He speaks of it as if it was already done. Though the cross was still hours later, Jesus could already, said, could already say it's finished. It's completed. It's good as done. And so in John chapter 19 there, Jesus is on the cross. He says what? It is finished. And it's by that work, through that work, because of that work, that the Son can say, I have glorified you. That brings us then to the petition itself. In verse 5, Jesus says, Now, because, Father, I have carried out the plan to perfection, because I have crossed the finish line of the objective that you have given to me, Father, I've finished the race, I've completed what you've given me to do. Now, Father, because of that, glorify me together with yourself. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Notice Jesus is beginning to get urgent here. He doesn't say glorify your son. He says glorify me. Father, glorify me. His heart is crying out here. And glorify me together with Yourself, in other words, in your presence. Glorify me together at your side. You see, the idea here is that Jesus desires the glory of being back in the throne room of heaven, basking in his Father's glory. He longs for it. He's panting, as it were, as a deer by the stream, as a man wandering in the desert. He wants to receive again the glory that was his before the ages began. He says, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, let me be clear that we're not talking here about Jesus' intrinsic glory. I don't know, what does that mean, Wes? I don't know, that's a big word. I don't know, what I mean by that is that this isn't the glory that accompanies the divine nature. When Jesus came in his incarnation, he retained his divine glory. But as theologians describe it, it was veiled by his flesh. That's when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see there as his ve- uh, the veil of his flesh was pulled away for a moment that his, his glory sparkled brilliantly before the disciples. By the way, Jesus is talking about here is that pre-incarnate glory, the glory that he had in the Father's presence at his side while he was worshipped, while he was marveled by all creation. And Jesus is saying, it is that very glory that he said, though I had equality with God, I counted it as something not to be held on to. 
If you were at our VBS a couple weeks ago, we talked about the sun leaving the courts of heaven. Here Jesus is describing just that. And now he longs to return to that eternal abode of glory, to again be worshipped by his creation, to be magnified by all those who are in the universe. And why? Why does he pray this? As biblical doctrines reads, quote, he surrendered the pre-incarnate glories from which he came. He left the worship of saints and angels to be despised and rejected by men, submitting himself to misunderstanding, denials, unbelief, false accusations, and every sort of reviling and persecution. And now we see here Jesus crying out, restore to me that glory. And look, notice at the end of verse 5 here. Lastly, he says this, before the world was. It's another audacious claim, another clear statement of of divinity, that I had glory with you, God, before the stars were made, before the galaxies were formed, before the angels lifted up their voices or anything else populated the universe. Before it all, I had glory, Jesus says. And so therefore, Father, because of that, The work's been completed. My humiliation is finished. Now glorify me once more. So what can we learn then as we look into the window of our Savior's hearts, as we sit as flies upon this wall, listening to our Savior's prayer for his own glory? We see this. Our prayers should be drenched in the glory of God. If someone were to wring out your prayers, is it just, is it soaked in God's glory? Is it scream forth glory, glory, glory to God? Not, not only that, our prayers should be devoted, devoted to the eternal plan of God. Are you praying for eternal life? Are you praying that sinners be saved that unbelievers be made disciples of, that the world would know Christ and his great salvation. And lastly, our lives, our lives should be dedicated to the glory of God. Jesus finished his work and glorified the Father. Believer, are you finishing your work to glorify the Father today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glory in which you have magnified your Son. Because of his work on the cross, now countless, a myriad of myriad, an unfathomable number for all eternity shall lift up their voices and like one chorus shall say, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Savior who has saved and given eternal life. God, I pray that our prayers would be like Christ, that we too would pray for the glory of God. I pray, Lord, that our prayers would be devoted to the eternal plan of God and that our lives would be dedicated to your glory. There's anyone in this room that does not know you, Lord. I pray that tonight would be the night in which you would give to them eternal life. It's your name I pray, amen.